Well, take your copy of God's Word and open with me to the book of 1 Peter. The book of 1 Peter. We'll read in a moment from verses 3 through 12, but our text this morning will be just verses 10 through 12. Peter addresses his letter to elect exiles. Exiles, those who are put out in this world. He tells them about their future, their future hope. Their future here may be compromised on account of Christ, but they have a great future. So do we. He's told them about their present situation. It is not as it seems. They are pressed, they are persecuted, they are enduring great trials and suffering, but God is working over their souls for something beautiful that will be revealed at the coming of Christ. And they have every reason for encouragement. What more could there be to say to elect exiles than this? Well, let's find out. We'll start in verse three. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. And according to his great mercy, he has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. To an inheritance that is imperishable and undefiled and unfading kept in heaven for you, who by God's power are being guarded through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed at the last time. And in this salvation you rejoice, though now for a little while, if necessary, you've been grieved by various trials, so that the tested genuineness of your faith, more precious than gold that perishes, though it's tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. And though you have not seen him, you love him. And though you do not now see him, you believe in him and rejoice with joy that is inexpressible and filled with glory, obtaining the outcome of your faith, the salvation of your souls. Concerning this salvation... The prophets who prophesied about the grace that was to be yours searched and inquired carefully, inquiring what person or time the Spirit of Christ in them was indicating when he predicted the sufferings of Christ and the subsequent glories. It was revealed to them that they were serving not themselves, but you and the things that have now been announced to you through those who have preached the good news to you by the Holy Spirit sent from heaven things into which angels long to look. Well, our exiled status and the exiled status of Peter's readers entailed a loss of status in this world. He calls them elect exiles of the dispersion. They are God's people dispersed among the cities of Asia Minor. They were displaced, dislocated. They did not belong. And in the course of conducting their work and going about making a living with their skills, they would feel that sense of exile and displacement and loss of status. With respect to the institutions of the day, they would feel their exiled status, a sense of loss, among family even. 
He calls them elect exiles and that resonates deeply with them across the whole of their experience. Well, it's interesting. Peter himself is not at home in this world. And he writes as one who is not at home in this world. But Peter writes at one who is at ease in this world. He's confident. He says, the apostle Peter, he addresses his readers and he calls himself an apostle. He speaks with command and with settled, confident authority. He's also worshipful and joyful as he writes, as an exile. His first line after the greeting, blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. And he is inviting us into the worship of the triune God, of which he's participating. Right before us on the page, he's blessing God and inviting us into the same. So Peter's not at home in this world, but he is nevertheless at ease. And he writes to impart something specifically to his readers. As I've said, our exiled status includes a sense of loss as it concerns our future in this life and age. And maybe you've counted the cost of losing something of the future that you might have had in this age on account of turning to Christ. And our exiled status entails something of a loss in the present as we undergo trials right now for his sake. And Peter has answered those beautifully. He is right on top of it, speaking to them of their imperishable inheritance and of the trials that are purifying their faith like gold. But their faith is way more precious than gold, for it's by faith that God guards them for their heavenly inheritance. Well, there is a sense of loss in the future and the present, but also the past. There's a sense of dislocation from family, from your own history, from your own nation. They are the elect exiles of the dispersion. It is as though we are scattered about the earth, gathering in local churches, but nevertheless not at home. And even cut off from our normal ways of identifying ourselves. Oh, we're still Americans and we still have ethnic heritages that may take us to other places and that's all a part of it. But it's not the same relationship. Well, Peter in these verses, no surprise, we've looked to the future, the present, turns our attention to the past. And he shows us our glorious past. If you're here and you're a part of a family by adoption, you have a real new past and a new connection that is every bit as real as blood with family and with a line. And so Christian, you and I have Every bit as real a connection as blood, even stronger and more real and deeper and more lasting than that with the people of God down the ages. And this is why Peter turns the attention of his readers now to the past, to anchor them in something old, in something rich, in something permanent and lasting, more lasting than the Roman Empire, which has gone by now, than these cities in Asia Minor, many if not all of whom have been renamed by now. He points us to our past. You'll notice just the passage today. Follow the tenses. The prophets who prophesied, they searched and 
inquired. It was revealed to them. And others who have come and announced and preached these things to you. We're taking a look back this morning. And it's all for our great encouragement. Encouragement's a good thing. You know, we should talk about the Lord to each other. But we should also talk to each other about what we have in the Lord. It was revealed to them they're not serving themselves, but you, you be encouraged that they were serving you and the things that have been announced to you through those who preach the good news to you. There's an emphasis here on the past and also all that the past has delivered to you and to me. All that you and I are included in by virtue of our connection with this rich and ancient past. There's three characters. There's more than that in here. But there's three characters that divide the passage. And that'll be the way that we unfold our time this morning. We'll find encouragement from our distant past, our recent past, and then we'll have a concluding lesson with an insight from the life of angels. That should help you to hold on. Angels are always interesting. So we'll have a concluding insight from the inner life of angels, we could say. Let's get into it. Verse 10 and 11 to find some encouragement from our distant past. He says, concerning this salvation, the prophets who prophesied about the grace that was to be yours, they searched and inquired carefully, inquiring what person or time the spirit of Christ in them was indicating. When he predicted the sufferings of Christ and the subsequent glories. And in verse 10 here, we see that our great and glorious salvation on which we've staked our lives with God's help is nothing new. Christianity for these first century readers was nothing new. It was the fulfillment of and the development of God's promises and plans to save a people for his name. This is where everything in the Old Testament, that much longer first half of our Bibles, was leading all along. And it is what God has been about bringing about Ever since we've fallen into sin, even before the foundation of the world. It's important for those early Christians to hear this, that you're not crazy. You didn't make this up and you didn't just believe something that's here now and gone tomorrow. This isn't a fad. It's not some new gimmick. This is the old stuff. This is the good stuff. This is the gospel as revealed in the Old Testament of which you are a part. And that's good for us to hear today too because at some point Christianity felt new. But it wasn't a mere human religion. It wasn't concocted in the mind of some mere man. But it is itself the fulfillment of the Old Testament scriptures. And as we come to the Bible and we hear it preached and we study the New Testament, We're always tending in our preaching and in our study to how the New Testament is the fulfillment of the old. And not just because it's nerdy and interesting, but because it strengthens our faith, just as Peter is strengthening the faith of his readers here. As he will, he's introducing the prophets to us, and he will draw from the Old Testament to demonstrate to them all that is theirs and ours. And even as we preach the Old Testament, We're seeking to read the Old Testament as Christians, as those who have the Spirit of God, who know the Lord Jesus Christ, 
Not because we have some secret insight that plants new meaning into the Old Testament, but because we have the true insight into where the Old Testament story was developing all along. Jesus would preach on the road of Emmaus to two disciples who were downcast and did not understand his death and, res- his death and were not expecting a resurrection. And he preached to them from the Old Testament because apparently the Old Testament taught about these very things. Yes, in shadows and in a veiled way. But when Jesus comes, aha, that is that. It becomes clear. And so Jesus preached on the road to Emmaus. And so preachers today and the apostles in the first century and other preachers preach Christ from the whole of Scripture. This salvation that we believe in, it's nothing new. And that is very important to understand. Well, who were these prophets? The prophets who prophesied. The prophets of the Old Testament were those who stood in, as it's been said, in the presence of God to receive the word of God. And then they stood in the presence of God, God's people to deliver God's word to them. In the book of Deuteronomy in the 18th chapter, there is the story of where this institution of the prophets, the prophetic institution comes from. And there God's people feared the voice of God at Sinai and pled with him not to speak lest they die. And there is some wisdom in that because they were great sinners. So God appointed Moses to speak on his behalf. And all through the first five books of the Bible, we see that God speaks to Moses and then Moses speaks to the people. The Lord speaks to Moses and then Moses speaks to the people. The Lord speaks to Moses and then Moses speaks to the people. God has not abandoned his people. He communicates to us. He takes initiative with us. He speaks to us and he does it through, in the Old Testament, the prophets. And so the institution of the prophets was established. Moses spoke of one day when a prophet greater than him would come, a prophet to whom the people of God would really listen and really obey. And that, of course, is the Lord Jesus But between Moses and Jesus, there were many prophets that came. And the prophets spoke the word of God to the people, having received the word of God in his presence. The prophets spoke, but the prophets also experienced suffering themselves. Great suffering as their word was rejected so often by the people. And the prophets experienced glory. You think of Moses himself who asked to see the glory of the Lord and see his face. And the Lord wouldn't let us him see his face, but would let him see the trail end of the light of his glory from his backside as he passed by. And the prophets had an up-close encounter with the Lord God in a way that the rest of Israel did not. Well, what did the prophets prophesy? It's helpful to recognize that it's not only that the prophets spoke of future things. They didn't just foretell. They also foretell. They they speak the truth about the world in front of them and a call to repent and to turn to the Lord and to obey. They have business that's relevant for the moment, but they did predict things and prophesy things. What is it in a word? The prophets who prophesied, he says, about the grace that was to be yours. In a word, if we had to put it in a word, 
the prophets prophesied a word of grace. And that is a way to characterize, in a word, the whole of the Bible. As God creates us, not because he owes us life, but out of the abundance of his joy as God, he makes humankind and sets us in a world as beautiful as it is, filled with food and opportunity, all by his grace. He gives us a word by his grace. And then after we fall into sin, all of his interactions with us from there that are not judgment, are grace. Now, when we think of the prophets, and there are books in the Old Testament, the, the harshest books, if you're familiar with some of those, are filled with judgment. That's true. Sometimes the first thing we think of with the prophets is judgment. And the prophets were what we could call covenant lawyers, that, that covenant established between God and his people at the mountain Sinai with Moses, had certain stipulations, blessings for obedience, curses for disobedience, and the lawyers the, uh, the prophets would look at that covenant and they would look at the people and then they would tell them what was coming and call them to respond in obedience in order to receive blessing. And so there was a lot of judgment that went down from their lips and after which God would fulfill those promises of judgment. But there were also glorious words of salvation all the way through the Old Testament, even just after our first sin as humans in the garden, God promises that a son of the woman will be born one day to crush the head of the serpent. A hint that all this might be reversed. The enemy will be destroyed. God comes in grace to Abraham and promises that he'll have a mighty nation born of him, but that all the families of the earth will be blessed in him. Well, how's that going to happen? Well, we'll have to wait and see as the story unfolds. Now, God stays with Israel and leads them through the waters and gives them his word and gives them his tabernacle, a way to meet with him in a sacrificial system so their sin might be, might be dealt with and all that, is, all that is of grace. And the prophets prophesied of a day when everything would be made right, when we would know the full forgiveness of sins. We wouldn't need the repeated sacrifices over and over, but one day all of our sins and all of our guilt will be taken away so that we don't have to walk around with shame or guilt. And one day God will make us new. He won't just take away our sins, but he'll give us a new heart. And through the prophet Ezekiel, he paints this picture of his people as a valley of dry bones. Imagine a whole valley filled with bones and then imagine all those bones being dry. That's a pretty hopeless situation. Well, what's the answer for that? Well, God will send his spirit to blow life into those bones so that flesh is put on them and he will breathe his life into them so that they walk and speak and obey. He will give new life to his people and even promises of a whole new creation that this whole age will pass and a new age will come First, his people will be made new, a new creation, but then that will give way so that the place of the universe itself will be remade and refashioned so that the whole earth is itself a new creation. What glorious promises. This is what they prophesied. And all of this, all of this is of grace and even their words of judgment are grace because they are intended to draw them into an obedient relationship with their maker so they might receive all of this. But they did more than prophesy. See here it says they searched and 
they inquired carefully. They searched and inquired carefully. You may be about a search of one kind or another in a given day or week, a search for a T connector for something deep within the engine of your wife's van that you struggled to find at O'Reilly's and the Toyota shop and uh, AutoZone and Napa, and then you just hacked a piece and you fixed the van. It was awesome. It was, took a whole day. But man, I was on a search. Where can I find this T connector? And how come no one wants to sell me the $5 part I'm imagining? You may search for your keys. Kids, you may search for a very particular Lego. Parents, you may help your kids find a very particular Lego. All these things are important to one degree and another. So many of our searches in a given week are not terribly important. But this is an utterly important search. It's not a short search. It's not a quick thing. It was an entire life thing. And it never resolved in their own lifetimes. It's really different than anything like that we know. They prophesied about the grace that was to be yours. And searched and inquired carefully. And what about inquiring what person or time the spirit of Christ in them was indicating when he predicted the sufferings of Christ and the subsequent glories. Searched, inquired, carefully inquiring. What person or time, better translated, time or circumstances. There's some debate over how the Greek should pop out. And if you, if you look at your different English translations, they will translate somewhat differently. I think the better way to handle it than in the ESV I'm reading would be the time and the circumstances. The prophets were less concerned about where is the person? Who is the person? Is that him? But ever concerned about the timing. Is this the time? When is the time? When is it going to happen? And they inquired carefully about this. And not just them involved here, but they were serving us. They were serving their own generation in that what God had given to the prophets, the prophets were to preach for the sake of strengthening their own generation in that day with what he intended for them to know as they looked forward so that they might endure their own trials. They had what they needed. But he says here is that they were serving us. It was revealed to them that they were serving not themselves, but you. Imagine how encouraging this would be for the exiles of the dispersion spread across the cities, if you will, caught behind enemy lines in Asia Minor in the day to read that the Old Testament prophets had them specially in mind in all the things that they wrote. And they searched and inquired carefully to understand these things, but we have an understanding today. And not just the prophets being involved in the writing of the Old Testament for you and for me, but apparently, and this is incredibly encouraging, the spirit of Christ was involved in this process for our sake. Do you see it? What person or time the spirit of Christ in them was indicating? So this, this Lord Jesus Christ, who was condemned and crucified and buried on account of whom we suffer, 
was busy in the thousands of years before his coming through the Spirit inspiring the Word of God. That ought to encourage you. That ought to encourage you on a hard day. Now, this is, this is nothing new that we are involved in. We also see in verse 11 that it was no accident. That is our suffering. The gospel we believe is not new. We didn't make it up. It was the subject matter of the prophets preaching and teaching and inquiring and the Spirit's inspiration back years But as the gospel is nothing new, so our suffering is no accident. Now, this was not obvious to Peter. That is, the sufferings of Christ were not obvious to Peter. It was not obvious to him that the Messiah to come, the Savior to come, would have to suffer in order to save. And you remember how he said, you are the Christ. And then Jesus says, it's necessary for the Christ to suffer and then to die And then be raised and Peter rebuked him and Jesus rebuked Peter. And then he said, you're all going to suffer as you carry your cross and follow me. And Peter didn't understand when he denied Christ three times. It was because he watched Christ suffering and that did not compute for him. Nevertheless, it was necessary for Christ to suffer. Well, it's not obvious to Peter's first readers or necessarily to us that suffering is a part of God's pattern for his people on their way to glory. As the first readers hear this read as a gathered church tucked away in their, in their town of Bithynia or Galatia or Cappadocia or whichever city in Asia Minor, they would hear this and recognize their own circumstances in the circumstances of Jesus The Spirit indicated and predicted the sufferings of Christ and his subsequent glories. And his suffering wasn't just a suffering, but sufferings. And so his glory isn't just a glory, but glories, plural. He was rejected and beaten and crucified and buried, mocked along the way. He has since been raised and then he ascended and he is now reigning. And so Peter is planting a seed here at the beginning of his letter that will germinate and flower across the book where we see a pairing and a parallel between the suffering to glory pattern of Jesus and the suffering to glory pattern of the Christian. And the accent isn't on the suffering, bear with it. The accent is on the glory which draws us through it with confidence that it will end so that we can say, For a little while, we're grieved by various trials. And that, I think, is what he means earlier in the chapter when he says, if necessary, you're grieved by various trials. I suppose there are some that that repent and believe and they're off to glory. God saves them and we may never know it. And there wasn't any suffering along the way. But it is the pattern established in the word by Jesus' own life and his teaching that suffering precedes glory. And so that was his plan for Jesus. So don't be discouraged, Christian, that your Savior was mocked and ridiculed and and killed. How much did they need to hear that? And you, Christian, need to hear that as well. 
that as you are mocked and ridiculed and have trouble in this age on account of Christ, glory is to come. And you can look to Christ and, and then see him glorified and find encouragement in that. So we find encouragement from our distant past. But we also find encouragement from our recent past. Look at the beginning of verse 12 here. It was revealed to them that they were not serving themselves, but you in the things that have now been announced to you through those who preached the good news to you by the Holy Spirit sent from heaven. So not only did the Holy Spirit, Spirit of Christ, predict the sufferings and the glories of Jesus, and by way of that prediction, the pattern for his people in the Old Testament scriptures, but he has personally delivered this message to you. And how encouraging is that? That through the preaching of the word each Lord's day and on the first time you hear the gospel preached, that is God coming to you with a word for you from the ancient scriptures that he's been busy inspiring so that you might hear and believe. And all of the things that the prophets were searching and inquiring carefully their whole lives to understand and and perceive, which they knew was to some degree a fruitless effort because they were serving you, you now have. They're yours. And every time we come to sit under the word on Sunday, we get a little bit more, a little different angle, a little more insight into all that we already have in Christ. There are a couple of vulnerabilities I have, I think we have when it comes to, to preaching. I just want to highlight the importance of preaching in the plan of God. As evangelist heralded the word and preached Christ, and as Christ is proclaimed as the means of building up his church. And the first is that sometimes we are tempted to make too much of the preacher. Uh, it's true that those who labor in teaching and preaching The church is called to show double honor, so it's appropriate to honor preachers, to esteem them and to pray for them. And I say that to you not because I want it, because it's biblical and it's good for our church when that's the case. That's our default mode and not suspicion or resistance or a hard heart, and that's no correction for you. By God's grace and through his word, uh, this is a very receptive and thankful church. But it is possible to make too much of the preacher. And that can happen in some places, and it can happen slowly over time. I don't think that it's best. I would say it's not biblical that we would uh, engage in video preaching and video campuses as though you need me somewhere else. No, we can multiply preachers. There are different ways that different traditions may fawn over and make too much of their preacher. Maybe there's nothing he can say that's, that's wrong. He can do no wrong. He could lead them anywhere and they would follow. It's a good instinct to follow a leader with the Bible in his hand, but be led by the Bible as he holds the Bible in his hand. And there's a reason why we have a pulpit. Uh, This is, we might say, a human tradition, but it is an old human tradition. Um, Replacing it with a music stand or or a coffee table or a couch, Uh, which I've seen all of that. I don't want to be hard. I don't don't think of a particular church. I'm not thinking of one in town. But it's a trend. And where does it come from? It comes from a desire to 
connect better with the people. Uh, Perhaps a right instinct that the preacher is important in the communication of the word of God. But it can also come from a lack of confidence in the word of God to mediate this whole thing that we're doing today. And so do I like that this is plexiglass? Well, there's a reason to like it being plexiglass. So you can see the Bible up here. (laughs) I'm gonna put it right in the middle. And uh, this Bible right here, uh, preacher whom I respect, Dave Helm, Put it this way, this Bible goes right here because it mediates the relationship between you and me. I don't, we can come out from the pulpit from time to time, but this isn't an experience with Trent. Uh, thank God I'm not a better communicator. <laughs> I'm not tempted to get a whole lot better than I can get. I'm tempted to grow, but I know my limitations and you know my ceiling. And I'm not an amazing orator or a communicator. And I thank God for that. To some extent, it keeps me humble And it keeps us with the Bible between us. I'm not tempted to leave it. I need my notes. Most of all, I need the Bible. And you need to know this is what this is all about here. Uh, We take this away. We don't know the one true and living God. We don't have access to the one true and living God. We don't have grace from him to be heard by him. We don't have the forgiveness of sins. We don't have hope. We don't have hope in our trials. And we don't have a connection with our past. Everything we have together, everything that I have to offer you as a preacher, I have from the book. And I don't have anything else. And so it's a good thing that there's a piece of furniture here. And it's a good thing, I guess, that you can see it. No promises will always keep this pulpit or that if we get a different one, that it'll have plexiglass. Don't cry foul. But you get the point. And maybe I'll get confident enough to walk over there like Abe someday. Give me a couple of years. <laughs> so we can make too much of the preacher in a way that causes us to diminish the place of the word among the people of God. We can also just make too little of preaching. We can replace it, as I've alluded to, with something like conversation or dialogue. And preaching can be dialogical. I remember in high school, I was a new Christian and a sister church of a church that I was a part of went to, for a number of Sundays, a coffee table and two seats and two of the pastors would replace the sermon with a conversation that they had prepared. I think it's wrong to do that. Um, It's not a sermon. Even if they call it a conversation and not a sermon, not the preached word, they've just said that a conversation is what the church needs to listen in on rather than having the word preached to them. And we can want to replace it with a conversation because it can feel in our context culturally, which is every culture has its own unique issues, we were a bit repelled by a man standing in front of a group and telling them what to believe and to do. But it all turns on the authority. Together we stand under this word. And you hold me to the word. And I'll hold you to it. So we can be tempted to replace the preaching of the word with conversation because after all, people have different learning styles and that's just the wrong way to think about preaching already. Preaching is not about learning. It involves instruction and teaching and learning, but all of that to an end that Christ may be proclaimed and known and worshiped. And so there is comfort and exhortation 
and calling that happens in the context of preaching, but this is not merely about how we learn. We've got a screen behind me just to hold hooks up there. If you get a little lost, you can kind of find your way back in. If I was a really good preacher, I'd just hit delete on it, and then you wouldn't get lost. Put that on me. Now, it's fine for us to do that. Uh, Just no moving background. That's not my style. It'll be a frozen background. So we can replace preaching with conversation. We can also reduce preaching to one of many ways that God ministers his word to us. This one's more subtle and it might be surprising to you. We can think of preaching alongside reading the word in public or singing the word in public or reading the word in private or singing the word in private or even in parallel with listening to preaching in private. Some of you are preaching hobbyists and that's not a bad thing. But it is God's plan that there would be those, those, for those Christians at Asia Minor, those had names and faces who preached the good news to you. You need a those. You need a preacher. And he's got to see you and you got to see him. This is a relationship that we have here. And preaching in the public service is the manner in which, once saved by an evangelist's preached word, God sustains his church. By way of simple application, as it concerns preaching in the context of the, the church gathering, prioritize, as a church, we prioritize being together in person in the weeks or perhaps very few months ahead. We'll discontinue the live stream. It was never the intention, as we've said in a half a dozen different ways, for that to be an enduring thing. And whatever COVID does, it's just kind of time to turn it off. Uh, that doesn't mean we don't need to get the word to you. We do need to get the word to you but much longer and we're risking developing some habits in the course of normal church life that are just not good for us. Now we'll blog on this long form as we try to do when we try to lead you and there will be some creative ways that we try to wean you off of it and there may be a kind of an invite only, uh, I could tell you but I'd have to kill you method by which an archive feed may be available but let me just say if you get volunteered for that and reached out, that's not a good sign for you in earthly terms. But in terms of the normal life of getting in late on Saturday night for work or or wanting to be with your family on Sunday or being out of town, we're just going to live with the kinds of problems the church has had for 2,000 years (laughs) and being just fine with. So we'll prioritize in-person preaching. And look for that in the, the days and weeks ahead. But secondly, as it concerns our mission, our global mission as a church, we should prioritize Bible translation in order that men and women might be, hear the word preached and be saved. But then we also have to prioritize the training of preachers. It's all part of a global mission strategy, not merely to make disciples, but to make disciples and establish churches led by godly elders who proclaim the word week in, week out who then equip a whole congregation to speak the word to their neighbors 
and some evangelists who merge who proclaim the word out and about and plant churches. So all of this right here from the word, those who preach the good news to you, it's really, really important that there are those who preach the good news to you. It was personally delivered by the Holy Spirit and painstakingly delivered. The prophet searched and inquired carefully about what time and circumstance in which the Messiah would come to them. But these preachers have searched and inquired carefully as to how they might get the word to you and to me. Oh, what it has taken to get the gospel to Greenville, South Carolina, if we only knew the story. And preachers have done it. And here we are meeting under the preached word. And week in, week out, we will sustain this mission and send some out to preach in faraway places to then establish churches that will meet. And then send some out to preach in faraway places and establish churches that will meet. And those preachers, they suffered in various ways. They traveled across the globe. They raised support. They faced opposition of various kinds. Got an email from a friend who is pastoring in the UAE, who is engaging in text conversations with brothers and sisters behind the lines in Afghanistan just this morning, said, please pray, there is an opportunity and uh, we need God to do a miracle. They may not make it. And that happens. Just a little anecdote from our immediate circumstance to appreciate something of what it has taken to get the preached word to you so that you might believe and have this salvation and this inheritance. It's personally delivered and painstakingly delivered. And all of this should come to mind for Peter's first readers and for us. So if you are hearing the preached word for the first time this morning, this is God's plan, perhaps to save you today. That you would hear of the death of Jesus Christ, his sufferings to take away your sin, and his glories, that he did not stay dead but was raised and is now seated at the Father's right hand and has sent his spirit so that you might have new life in him. And if you believe on that today, then you can identify with Peter's readers. And if you're remembering today, when you did first hear the good news first preached to you, maybe you would reach out this week to whomever that was and say, I just want to encourage you that I'm still believing. I love Jesus and I'm worshiping him each week with my church family in Greenville if you didn't know where I was. It's encouraging for a pastor and a preacher to know that God is at work. One way to do that is to go back to the first preacher who spoke the word to you. Well, now it's time for a concluding insight from the inner life of angels, which you've all been waiting for. This word was preached to you, the good news by the Holy Spirit sent from heaven, things into which angels long to look. He's called us to praise God. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. And he's given us every earthly, heavenly reason to do so by speaking to us about our future 
and about what God is doing right now in our trials and now connecting us with our past. We're, we're those dispersed across the whole earth and we feel dislocated, but now we feel anchored and rooted. And what more is there to say? Well, let's zoom way out. Let's zoom way out so we can see the whole cosmos and put on our 3D or like heavenly glasses so we can see into the invisible at the angels gazing into what God is doing in this church right here and in places where it doesn't appear he's doing anything. Now we know from the gospel of Luke that angels rejoice in heaven with the father over every sinner who repents, joining the father in his joy over every... So they're attentively looking into the affairs of the spirit down here among us. They're very interested in what God is doing. Angels are very interesting to us and the most interesting thing about them to us is what they are most interested in and it is our salvation. The things, right there, the things into which angels long to look. There is a difference between humans and angels. Angels are heavenly beings. Humans are human beings. We are made in God's image and the object of his special affection and attention and plans in a way that the angels are not in on, but they do long to look in on it. And it's this last word about angels, which is a beautiful way to conclude this opening section of encouragement with a view to praise. So friends, be encouraged. You and I have something that the Old Testament prophets worked their whole long lives to understand and to get ready for you. It's been long in coming and it's yours. And you and I have something that preachers have toiled and striven and suffered in order to get to you personally. And you and I have something that the angels would just love to get in on with us, but it's ours. In other words, you have every reason for encouragement, no matter your circumstances, and that is heaven's truth for you. And having every reason for encouragement we have every reason to give God praise. Let's pray. Oh, the petty dreams of tyrants in this age, Father, they are nothing and they will be shown to be as nothing. We thank you for this glorious word about your great plans, long in coming, underway from before the foundation of the world and inspired in the Old Testament and now visible in this gathering in our songs. And we thank you for the faithful prophets that have gone before us who have suffered in a variety of ways, some cut in two. They spoke a word of judgment to call sinners to repentance and that some did and that by your grace we have. That's not our doing, it's your doing and we are ever thankful for your gracious work to save. Father, you have revealed your mercy to us and you've revealed your son to us whom we do not see with our eyes but whom we love. And you've revealed your spirit and your spirit has revealed your son to us.
through this book. And we give you great praise and thanks, our triune God. It's in Christ's name we pray, amen.